Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the ancient world, kingly genealogies, like kingly cities, were constructed to establish a monarch's credibility, divinity, authenticity, and permanence. It should come as no surprise, then, that Matthew, like Genesis, deconstructs the king's genealogy by presenting a disruptive counter-narrative. Where Judah longs to boast, Matthew ridicules. Where David seeks credibility, Matthew discredits. Where Judah strives to build a city surrounded by high walls, Matthew breaches the same, paving the way for a new kind of king, one who rules an unseen city made without walls and without human hands. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 3. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 222 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the difficulties of assuming the literal historicity of these genealogies and of assuming the boredom of listening to these genealogies, what you're doing is making an assumption that this is just an old dusty list of names and it's just a record of this birth line. But what we've discovered again and again, dealing with genealogies in the Old Testament, and obviously here in Matthew, is that the names have significance. And very often, almost universally, their significance is disruptive. In other words, if it were simply a matter of who begat whom, then it's just what happened. And oh, isn't it interesting that this ancestor went to Italy and this ancestor studied French, the way people talk about their genealogies, humanly speaking. But here in Matthew, the word I'd like to use is disruptive. These names are disruptive because if these names are correct, it's akin to finding out that you were the son or the daughter of a prostitute or a foreigner or somebody who delegitimizes your connection to some famed ancestor. This list of names assumes a lot. It assumes that you really, really know the Bible well. And you and I are thinking, okay, Perez, what did Perez do? And da, da, da. and we're having to go through this process of trying to bring these stories together. And I think that that challenge is exactly what Matthew and the New Testament is trying to do. It's trying to bring all these ideas together in order to make a point that is how the new testament is beginning saying okay we're going to go through a review before we move on it's kind of like you know the first few weeks of school after a nice relaxing summer 
you have to do a review of everything you did last year before you can move on to the next step. Let's just review. We all know this very important line, this very important story, because all of these people had been lining up already to do important things throughout the course of the Older Testament. So now let's take a look at them again before we move on. You mentioned, Father, about looking at genealogies and the way we do so today. I've done research on my own genealogy, and it's one thing to see a bunch of census records so-and-so lived at such-and-such such a house. They were this many years old. They had this many children, and such-and-such. Such. It's another thing to say, oh, my great-great-grandfather came from Switzerland, settled in Nebraska, moved to California to work in the wine trade, moved back to Nebraska, went and found a wife in Switzerland, brought her back, brought her parents back, and they got married, and they all lived together, and they had eight children. It's something different when you understand more of the story, and that's one of the beauties of this. A lot of these names are significant in the story of the Hebrew Bible. Some of them are more difficult for us to grasp because there is very little detail about them in the Bible other than their name. And so we need to still work to extract whatever meaning we can from the name so that we can build out this story that's culminating in Jesus at the end of this genealogy. I want to read the verse, Richard, and we'll get started talking about what we see as the disruption of the genealogy already in verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zorah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Aram. As we look at the names, one character jumps out right away and that's Tamar. First of all, because she's the first woman who's mentioned. That's interesting. Secondly, we have a very rich story about her in Genesis, in Genesis 38. She marries one of the sons of Judah. Judah in Hebrew is Judas in Greek. Marries one of the sons, and before she conceives a child, her husband dies. So according to tradition, then she marries the next son of Judah. Same thing happens. Husband dies before she conceives. So Judah, not wanting to press his luck anymore, rather than having her marry his next son, sends her away back to her family and withholds that last son. So therefore, the birthright that she was supposed to have through her husband is lost to her because Judah doesn't want to lose it and wants to keep it with his final son. Tamar comes up with a plan where she poses as a prostitute and Judah, who's on a journey, runs into a prostitute, lies with her, and gives her his insignia, which is basically his ID, as a promise that he's going to come back later with payment. Tamar becomes pregnant. They say, who could be the father? And they're getting ready to kill her for fornication. And she says, no, I can tell you exactly who the father is, and brings out the ID card, the insignia, of Judah, her father-in-law. So she is pregnant through her father-in-law. As a result, she bears twins, and the twins are Perez and Zerah. There is an interesting story about the struggle of the two in the womb. The first one to punch his way out literally from the womb, his hand comes out, is Perez, the breacher of the womb who literally sticks his hand out of the womb. I don't want people to get too graphic with that image. And they put a scarlet string around his hand to prove that he is the one who is the firstborn. To me, it always sounds like when people are fourth and goal on the one 
and they're trying to make that touchdown and they stretch and put the ball over the goal line. That's exactly what Perez did, stuck his hand out there, got the crimson string to show that he was the firstborn and he was going to have the birthright even though he had a twin brother. Perez, who is the opener of her womb, who breached her womb in order to continue the line and claim his birthright, as you said, he is mentioned, but the other sons of Judas who is the functional metaphor for the betrayer, who could not continue the line, are excluded. She, as the widow, asserts her right as the widow, even. And these other sons, whom Judas wanted to carry the birthright, get nothing. So this is the irony. Judas had a whole plan of how the line was going to continue through his son. But in fact, it did not continue through his son. He had a new son through his daughter-in-law. His son continued on the line, but the son he withheld bore nothing. Judas had a plan of how this was going to roll out, and it didn't roll out according to his plan at all. It continued on in what, to Judas's mind, was an impossible continuation of the line. The other thing that's striking, Richard, the name Zerah in Hebrew means rising or rising light. So when you put it in conjunction with the story of Perez, you see that you have on the one hand this son who is breaching the womb in order to disrupt the line or to continue it in a way that goes against the plan of the progenitor, even though Judas was still the one who provided the seed. And that this disruption this circumventing of the initial plan of the progenitor is what allows life to continue and light to rise. And I just love the aspect of this one where the line continues through the widow. The only woman we have in the line so far is a widow. The importance it places on the role of men to make sure that the widows and the orphans and the strangers are being taken care of, it stresses the wickedness of Judas in the way that he neglected this widow, who is even a relative, a daughter-in-law. And for us, I mean, we don't think of daughters-in-law as relatives, but we have to understand in this society, and in plenty of societies today, a daughter-in-law is a daughter more than an in-law. The fact that not only would Judas send away a widow, but a widow who is a relative shows the baseness of Judas. Now, the name Perez appears in numerous genealogies in the Old Testament. And one of the breadcrumbs that we'll talk about later when we come down to verse 5 is that Perez is an ancestor of Ruth. What's interesting about the story of Ruth is that she too is a disruptor of the Davidic line. I want to just call this out that this tension between those who consider themselves to be the true heirs of Abraham and the rest of the world is already being brought to bear in these names. And these specific names aren't a concoction of Matthew. They're lifted from the Old Testament, which means that the tension between those who consider themselves the true sons of Abraham and the rest of the world is not new. It's an old tension. And we just talked on our Tuesday show with Father Paul about this very important point in the Pauline epistles, that to be a son of Judas, to be a son of Jacob, of Israel, does not make you different or exceptional. 
or something other than the rest of the nations in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Paul is simply explaining what was already taught. There's no difference between you and everybody else. You're all Adami. You're all normal from the ground, common. The way man is taken from the dust, from the dirt in Genesis, like the creeping things on the ground. So if that's the case, then truly what Matthew will teach us later is true that God can make children of Abraham out of stone. There's nothing about you as a son of Judas that makes you special. Nothing. And I hasten to add with respect to the New Testament that when we deal with the question of chosenness, it bears no resemblance to manifest destiny or Western slash American exceptionalism here or abroad. It has nothing to do with being special or better than anyone else. It simply means that from among all the sinful peoples of the earth, you were, quote, chosen to be made an example of so that others would see what happens to sinners who are put under the judgment of God's instruction. Paul makes that very clear in Romans, that the distinct honor of those who are called sons of Jacob is that their sins are put on display for everyone else, as we read in Deuteronomy, as an example, and they are put on display through the execution of Jesus Christ, who bears the shame of their sin. It's very important that we deprogram ourselves. I mentioned earlier the problem with Zionism. I want to be clear, as a socio-political ideology, it's no different than any other ism. This is our nation, our people. Everybody talks this way. It's not unique. What's unique is what scripture is saying, which is anti-identity, anti-nationalistic, which is that we are all taken from the ground, we're all common. And the only difference between you and me is the difference we invent about ourselves. But if we both live in the same land, we're both, in effect, from the same womb. So calm down. The other aspect of Tamar coincides with that precisely, Father, because, yes, she's the daughter-in-law, she's a widow, but she's also a prostitute. She dresses up like a prostitute so she can lure in Judah. So that's the other side of this. It's like, oh, Judahites, your great-great-grandmother was a whore. She was a widow, she was cast out of her home, and she was a prostitute. All those aspects together as the progenitor of Judas's line, of Judah's lines, of the Jewish line, is very important because not only is this the family that will produce the king later on, David, but it is also the line that gives its name to Judahite. So the fact that Matthew is emphasizing this and not against Jews as if they are someone on the outside because this is clearly a text that is self-aware in a Jewish way from a Jewish perspective. It's a critique against themselves saying, hey, by the way, don't get too high and mighty. We have to remember that our own ancestress was a widow, was cast out, and a prostitute. So with these last two names, Richard, there's an implication of infrastructure, which also occurs throughout Genesis when we're trying to show the problem of dynasty and the line creating cities. So Hezron means wall, or some scholars have argued surrounded by wall. We don't see that that translation is necessarily correct, but there still is the meaning of a wall. And then Aram in Hebrew has to do with height, something high. Right. It comes from the root room 
to be high. So Aram then comes from that. So something that's high. Something walled or related to a wall. Chetzer means wall. So Chetzron means like something that's walled. And then you have room, Aram, something that's high. So high and walled, it's a city, protected city. This is definitely pointing to the entrapments of a protected city, of a kingdom of human beings protecting themselves, human beings containing themselves and trying to carry on their dynasty in the way that they try to carry it on. Every generation repeats the same mistake. Even though somehow Perez breached the womb of the widow to continue the line, even though light was shed on the truth of his position as the genuine firstborn, we still have in this line as it continues, human beings trying to build high walls to contain everything and have control because they're still interested in the city of David that is ridiculed in 1 Chronicles. Right, and this verb peres, parats in Hebrew, it's used a few times to talk about wombs, but it's also often talked about city walls. When you breach a city wall when you're attacking. There's something there too, I think, that's connecting. Yeah, and women represent cities in scripture. The opening of the womb, the breaching of the womb, the breaching of the city, these are powerful connections. Again, I think the key lesson in all of this is to be reminded First and foremost, that familiarity with the Old Testament is not just a requirement, but it's the main course. If you have familiarity with the Old Testament, then you understand how the New Testament, which is very brief and has much less depth and content by comparison, then you understand how it basically puts a period on the sentence. But what good is a book where you look at the period but don't read the sentence that comes before. So Matthew is forcing the Romans, he is forcing the Greeks to study the Hebrew text, or at least the Septuagint, which requires the study of the Hebrew text. You have to know the material, that's number one. Number two, that in this specific genealogy as elsewhere, we are messing with human conceptions of kingship, divinity, and the kingly line. We are messing with the human preoccupation with dynasty and our obsession with what is genuine in human terms. Because God can, as we said, and we'll hear later in Matthew, make children of Abraham from the stone, that all of the human beings taken from the ground are no different than any other, which means technically a Minnesotan could have been chosen to be part of this genealogy. It doesn't matter if they are an Obed, of God's teaching, a slave of the Torah, and act accordingly, then they could be a son or a daughter of this line. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.